0: Welcome to the Dunwoody Community Church Podcast. We are so glad you have chosen to listen in to one of our Sunday services, and we hope that you will be blessed by today's message. For more information about Dunwoody Community Church, please visit us at dunwoodychurch.org. That's dunwoodychurch.org. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We are... We are cruising through. There's only 16 chapters. We are slowly but surely making our way through the book of 1 Corinthians. And you have probably heard from 1 Corinthians 13. It is one of perhaps the most famous passages in all the Bible. And so we're gonna work our way through it. Before we start, remember sort of where we are in what Paul's talking about because 1 Corinthians is Paul answering these questions. The Corinthians have written him a letter and, of course, there's no post office, so they had to send the letter with somebody. People have come along. They've asked him these questions in the letter, and these different people have filled Paul in on things that are going on. And we know that because he says that. At one point in this letter, he says, oh, I've heard from these members of Chloe's household that such and such is happening. He'll say later at the end, "I thank you for sending, and he'll name these three guys who've come and delivered the letter to him. That, that he's getting information, and then he's got their letter full of questions. They've asked him a question about spiritual gifts, which he started to answer last week in chapter 12. And I want you to look in chapter 12 at the end at verse 31. Now, eagerly desire the greater gifts. And then look at chapter 14, verse 1. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit. So Paul in chapter 13 is actually taking a bit of a detour. He started in chapter 12 answering their question. And again, as we've said many times, we don't know what their question is. We're having to read between the lines, sort of figure out. But it it looks like there's some competition going on in the church about spiritual gifts. Maybe there's some sense of, you know, oh, I'm better than you because I have these gifts. Or you're not as good because you don't have these gifts. Something's going on there. And so Paul begins by telling them, everybody's got a gift and they're all important. You can't say any of them are unimportant. Yes, some are kind of normal, quote unquote, looking administration, teaching, like we do those things all the time, leadership, these things happen in the normal world, and then there's gifts that are truly miraculous, healing, miracles, things like that, either way Paul says it's God's spirit at work in people, it's his spirit at work in people to build up the church, you don't have your gift for you, you have it for the community. And so he's going to take this little digression now before he jumps into chapter 14 and really begins to answer what they've asked. Because you know, when someone asks you a question, there's always kind of two things going on. There's answering the question, but there's also, why are you asking me that? So imagine my sons come to me and they're like, hey dad, I know when you were younger you had some training on drifting, you know, and and how to steer a car when the back end is moving around. Could you teach us that? Well, one, one part of that for me would be, oh, yeah, of course, sure, absolutely. That's a really good thing to know, <laughs> right? If, if the back end of your car comes swerving around, it's really good to know how to control that and get it going straight again. And the other part inside me would be going, and why exactly do you want to know how to Drift. Like, could we talk about it? So what would I do first? Is the first thing I'm going to do with them be, okay, here's what's going to happen. You're going to feel this, right? You're going to sense these things. The car's going to do this. You need... No, the first thing I'm going to do is be like, don't ever do this. Don't do this intentionally, Right? If go out to a speedway if you want to intentionally do this. This is for like when you live in the mountains of North Carolina, like Elizabeth and I did when we were first married, and there's snow and ice on the roads five months out of the year. This is safety. You don't go do these things. This is how to get out of these things when they happen. There's gonna be the section of, okay, look, you need to know this first. And then there's gonna be the okay, here's the answer to your question. That's what Paul's doing. Chapter 13 is the, okay, look, we need to set some boundaries here, guys. And then chapter 14 is, okay, let's talk about your question. So read along with me, if you will. I'm actually going to start in 1231. We'll pick up from what we just read and read through chapter 13. Now, eagerly desire the greater gifts, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not eagerly angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child... Paul starts this little di- diversion. Eagerly desire the greater gifts, he says. And he's going to pick that back up in 14. But first, I'm going to show you the most excellent way. Way means road. It's not a manner of how you do something. It's a path. I'm going to show you the path to walk, Paul says. Look, th- this, this is the way you should be walking through these things. And then he says th- th- these four statements that I don't think, like, we, that doesn't really affect us because these things aren't part of our normal life. But if you were sitting in Corinth listening to this letter, this would sound really surprising. If I speak in tongues of men or angels but don't have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Next week, we're going to talk extensively about tongues because 14 talks extensively about tongues. But for now, just hold it in some tension if you're not sure what that means. Just know that speaking in tongues, speaking in other languages, some sort of utterances that people couldn't understand, that's totally normal in the world of the Bible. Like, the, the Jewish believers, people who were Jews and became Christians, they would have spoken tongues, usually. People who were Gentiles, Greeks, became Christians. They would have spoken in tongues as part of their worship service. Like, you know, if you have a quiet time, you read your Bible and you pray, you have the things you do. For them, speaking in tongues would have been very normal. It's kind of a weird thing for Paul to say. Like, if you speak in tongues, it doesn't matter. But isn't that a sign of devotion? Isn't that a good thing? And then the next one he says is even worse. If I kept the gift of prophecy... Now, anyone could speak in tongues in their world. Like, it was a normal thing for them. But you could only prophesy if the God gave you the gift. You didn't prophesy as a follower of Apollo unless Apollo came to you with the gift. Like, that's a big hunking deal for the Gentiles, for the Greeks. If I can prophesy, Paul says, if I don't have love, it's nothing. Like, anybody who was a, a, a Greek believer who heard that, their ears would have poked up and they'd be like, what? That, that's nothing? That's like... That's the God, that's the God speaking to you. Like, that's not nothing. And the next two, he says, are particularly Christian. If I have faith that can move mountains, that Jesus said that. He said that to disciples once when he told them to do something, they're like, oh, we can't do that. You need to give us more faith. And Jesus' response is, guys, you don't have faith to begin with. If you had faith, if you had any faith, you had the teeny tiniest amount of faith, you could say to that mountain, go, and it would throw itself into the sea. And what he means, in fact, in that situation, he means you don't need faith to do this, guys. You need to obey and do it. But that is the gold standard of faith for the history of Christianity, to speak to a mountain and have it throw itself into the sea. To our knowledge, it has never happened. Like, it doesn't mean it hasn't, that we don't know everything that's ever happened in the last 2,000 years. But at least in recorded church history, no one has ever spoken to a mountain, had it get up, displace itself, and drop in the sea. There's no place we know of where there used to be a mountain, and then it moved because a Christian spoke to it. Paul says, if I could do that, something has never been done before, like what Jesus said faith meant. Paul says, I'd be nothing without love. Really? Really? If you had the gold standard of faith, you'd be nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, give my body over to hardship and I do not have love, I gain nothing. It's Jesus who says you gain from those things. Like that's why we would do them as Christians. Jesus said to the rich young ruler, sell all you have, give your possessions to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Like you get good stuff, you get gain if you do this. Jesus told his followers all the time, they persecuted me, they're going to kill me They're going to persecute you. They're going to kill some of you. But do you remember what he says in the Sermon on the Mount? When they persecute you, when they harm you, when they chase you, when they abuse you, you are blessed for great is your reward in heaven. And Paul comes along. You're sitting in church listening to this letter being read to you. And Paul comes along and says, if I give all I possess to the poor, just like Jesus said, if I give my body over to hardship, just like Jesus said, and I don't have love, I'm not getting anything from that. Like for us, this is, this is a common chapter. It gets read lots of different places. Boy, for them, when he says that, I think everybody's ears are going up and probably everyone is starting to formulate You know, that little internal lawyer you have in you when you hear things you don't like. Everybody's formulating that. What? No, I remember they read us this story about Jesus and what are you talking about? And Paul just keeps on going and he explains what he means by love because the word he's using for love here is an unusual word and you've heard me say this before and if you've gone in churches I'm sure you've heard this before we have this word love that's huge it means tons of different things I love my car and I love my wife but if I come to my wife and say honey I love you just like that silver 206 Honda Accord that's not going to go well right those two loves better be different They don't have an encompassing word for love in Paul's language like we do. They have specific words for love. They have a very common word that means affection and and friendship and you like each other. They have a very common word that means romance. They have a very common word that means mercy and pity and you feel sorry for someone. Paul doesn't use any of those words. He uses the word, again, if you've hung out in a church, you've heard it before. He uses the word agape. Now, in our world, in Christianity 2,000 years later, oh, agape is two thumbs up. I mean, there's agape hospital and agape healthcare and agape hospice. And like, we are into agape. In his world, it was a little used word. And in the Greek language that he's writing it up until now, it's basically applied to Dogs. Agape is the love that a dog has for its master. That unselfish devotion of a dog that, you know, you could kick it, you could abuse it, you could do whatever you want. It's going to come back to you because it loves you so much. And the Christians pick up this word that, I mean, it's not, it, it, it's not a great word. You wouldn't want someone to say that to you back in this world, right? Oh, you're full of agape. You're just like a dog. The Christians pick that up and they run with it. They're like, no, that's that's exactly how God treats us. God has agape for us. He's devoted us. We treat him like dirt. We never do what he says. And he sticks with us. He sticks right there. The Christians pick that up and say, no, agape is exactly what we're talking about. And Paul is now saying, that's how we should treat one another we should treat one another with agape. And he runs through this list, and we'll come back to it in a few minutes because it's daunting. Like there's 15 things on this list. Half of them are positive, love does this. Half of them are negative, love doesn't do this. And it is daunting. But he ends in verse eight with love never fails. And he goes on to detail that all these other things, and he's, and he's going to talk about them. He's going to talk about prophecy and tongues and knowledge and all extensively in chapter 14 when he gets into actually answering their questions. But he says all of that one day, it'll be gone. Because one day, completeness is going to come. Perfection, fulfillment, Jesus. One day, Jesus is going to come. And everything is going to be set right. And Paul says, we're not going to need prophets then. We don't need someone to tell us what Jesus says. He's right there. He's just going to say it. We don't need teachers. I fully expect to be out of a job in eternity. Because you don't need pastors. You don't need people to teach you. You don't need people to encourage you. No, really, God is real. He's at work. There he is, right? The big shiny guy. You're not going to need people like me. Tongues, prophecy, knowledge, all these things. Paul says eventually, all that goes away because someday everything will come to fulfillment and he uses this I just think this is a wonderful example he uses the example of childhood because obviously everyone listening to him was a child or had been a child everyone listening to me you either are a child or you've been a child it is a universal human experience and we all remember that there are things we thought or didn't understand when we were kids that we get to be adults and it's like Oh, so I'm not going to embarrass myself fully by telling you how old I was when I figured this out, but it was well into elementary school when I realized why it was that I was born on July 5th. My sister is born on July 11th, and she is two years younger than me, or so my parents claim, because 11 minus five is six. She's six days younger than me. She cannot, you can't fit two years into six days. It's math. I was well into elementary school. Before, it was kind of like, oh, birthdays. I was one, and then I was two, and then the six days passed, right? It made no sense to my childish mind. My my, my childish reasoning and understanding could not possibly go from January 11th to January 5th and come up with two years. But at some point, oh, Paul says one day that's what it's gonna be like. If you are a follower of Christ, all those things that you're like, how? The Trinity, God is one, God is three. How? How is that possible? I don't know. I can just tell you that scripture constantly affirms that God the Father is God, that Jesus the Son is God, and that the Holy Spirit is God, that they are all God. Okay, so there are three different gods. Oh no, they're all the same God. Sovereignty, free will. How is that possible? It just doesn't work in Western logic. But the scriptures affirm continually that God is absolutely sovereign over everything and we are absolutely free in all of our choices. How? I don't know. But the reason I don't know is because I'm a child. I don't know how to think about those things properly. Ask me after Jesus comes back. I will explain it to you. I will have it. I I will think like an adult. Of course, you will too, so you won't need me to explain it to you. We're all going to grow up when Jesus comes back. And all those things that we're like, what? How? I don't get that. It's all going to make sense. Because completeness is here all these pieces are gonna fall into place. Paul says right now, we see as in the reflection of a mirror. These folks, they don't have mirrors like we have. They don't have silver nitrate and surfaces that actually reflect. A mirror for them is a piece of bronze metal or a shallow bowl with water in it. So I want you to imagine that every morning you get up and whatever it is you do, comb your hair, put on makeup, put in contacts, you use a spoon as your mirror, right? That's what they did. That's what a mirror was like for them. Paul says the Christian life is like trying to put a contact in using a spoon to see it. Like lots of it doesn't work. It's like trying to comb your hair using a spoon to see what it looks like. You don't get it right. It's so distorted. But Paul says, one day we're not going to be using that spoon anymore. We're not going to use that piece of brass that, that, that bowl of water to try, you know, hold the bowl just right with the light so that you actually get some reflection. Some, some, you can see some little bit of yourself in the water. Paul says one day it's going to be like you and me talking, looking at each other right now. Jesus will be as clear to us as we are to each other. He will speak. You will hear him as clearly as you hear me. That day is coming Paul says we will fully know all those things we wondered about all those things that didn't make sense when Jesus returns all that gets set free but now he says today while we still try and look at the spoon while we still have this crazy reflection while we still don't know and we're really kids when it comes to thinking three things remain faith hope and love Because those are things that will go into Jesus' kingdom. Prophecies won't. They'll be done. You don't don't need prophets in Jesus' kingdom. Teaching will be over. You don't need somebody to come and give you knowledge. Jesus is right there. All these different gifts that God has given to build up the church, we won't need them in eternity. We will all together be the church of Jesus Christ. He'll be right there. But faith, hope, and love, Paul says those go into eternity they never cease our faith whatever how small it is right now it will one day be certainty and all that little faith we have it just goes right into Jesus kingdom all the hope we have and hope in their world is expectation it doesn't mean wish it means you expect it I expect lots of things I expect God to answer prayers I expect God to bring good out of all things. I expect him to pull all things together. But the truth is, you look around the world, he doesn't do everything I ask him in prayer. It sure doesn't look like he's pulling everything together. There's a lot of things that happen that I don't see the good that come out of him yet. That little bit of hope that we have, it goes into eternity and it becomes certainty. Like there's no more question. There's no more I expect it, but. All that will become certainty. And love, all these things that he writes about, love is, love is, love is not, love is not, all that will go into eternity. All that will go with you. All that will matter. It will count. Now, I find that so encouraging because I don't know about you, but a lot of times you do good and nothing comes of it. I spent a year meeting with a guy from our church who wanted to divorce his wife. Like, like they, they, they had drifted apart and there was plenty of blame on both sides to go around, but he was going to leave his wife. And we met regularly for a year with him saying, I'm going to leave her and me saying, no, you're not. You know what the scriptures say. You don't have justification to leave your wife. You don't have biblical grounds. What you have is a command to love her. And every time he'd say, ah, you're, I mean, we're looking at it. It's in the Bible. This it is not a disputable matter. It's not one of those things you'd be like, oh, well, over here it says hate your wife and over here it says love your wife. No, love your wife. Husbands, love your wives. That is throughout the scriptures. He's like, yep, you're right. I'm gonna do it. And then we'd get together again a couple weeks later and he'd be like, oh, this happened. She, I, I, I'm out, I'm done. I'd say, no. <laughs> no, you're not. You know you're not. You know the Lord would not look on that pleasingly, you you know he's not okay with that. (sighs) Yeah, you're right, you're right, I know. And then a year later, he divorced his wife. What do I do with that year? (laughs) What do I do with those hours and hours and hours that I spent with him, reminding him of the scriptures, encouraging him, standing with him? It didn't work. What Paul seems to say is, every bit of kindness, every bit of encouragement, every time I rejoiced with him when he did it right and I mourned with him when something went wrong, Paul says every single one of those will go into Jesus' kingdom. They all matter. Now, I don't know how. I don't know how God's gonna wrap all of that up, but everything I teach you here, that will all go away. It will all get wrapped up and and, and be done with. You won't need it anymore. But every bit of kindness that we show one another, that continues in Jesus' kingdom. Every time you could be jealous, but you're like, you know what? No, I'm just gonna be glad that happened to them. Sure, I wish it happened to me, but I'm gonna rejoice with them that it's good for them. That goes on into Jesus' kingdom. Nobody knows about it but you and God. It doesn't change or affect anybody else. But Paul says it matters. It remains. It will never fail. Everything you do out of love, all this list Paul gives us, Paul says that matters. It will never end. It will never be done. It goes on into eternity. I think this is sort of when Jesus says, store up treasures for yourself in heaven. How do you do that? Love. Because... Having the gift of tongues and not love, you're not gonna have anything in treasure. And having the gift of prophecy and not the gift of love, you're not gonna have any treasure in heaven. Having faith, giving everything you possess away, you're you're being persecuted, your body beaten for Christ. If you don't have love, Paul says, you're not gonna get anything from that. Because those things aren't what continue. What continues is love. So I'm gonna go back through this list that Paul gives us, and we're gonna dive into it. We're gonna talk a little more specifically about what these words mean. Paul says, starting in verse four, love is patient. Literally, it's long-suffering. I've told you the, the language Paul's writing in, it loves to stick words together to make more words. And it's the word for long or far, and the word for suffering. Love suffers a long way. It suffers a long time Paul says. Love is kind. This is great. The word kind here, this is the only time it ever appears in scripture. It's actually the only time it ever appears anywhere in the world. Paul made it up. He took an adjective that means to be useful and he used it as a verb. To be kind, it's not a feeling. It's an it's being useful to someone it's doing what is useful for someone else every time you do that every time you are useful to someone Paul says that will last forever that will go on into Jesus kingdom and it will continue none of that gets lost none of that is in vain Paul says love does not envy literally it's not jealous it doesn't see things that others have or can do and feel jealousy about them. It rejects that. It does not boast. Or again, literally, it does not brag about itself. This isn't like, oh, Braves won the pennant, woo it, it, it means to come back on yourself. It's boasting about how great you are. It is not proud. Literally, it is not inflated. It is not puffed up. Love is not full of itself, Paul says. We all know what that means. We all know what it means to be full of ourselves. That's exactly the same way it, they say it in his world. It's inflated. It's puffed up. It does not dishonor others. Literally, it does not bring shame on anyone. You know, shame was a huge deal in their world, much more than in ours, and it's not a great thing in ours. Love never does anything that would put shame on someone else, that would make them ashamed It simply won't do that, Paul says. It's not self-seeking. It doesn't look out for its own affairs, Paul says. And he says that in lots of places, right? We don't only look out for our own affairs. We look out for the affairs of others. We don't only care about our own things. We care about the things of others. Paul says it's not eagerly angered. It's the word to prick something, like to, to poke it. When you're poked, you react People poke you to get a reaction from you. And Paul says when love is poked, it doesn't react. It doesn't lash out, but it also doesn't go the direction. You, know, you poke someone to get them to go somewhere, to do something, to react. Doesn't do it. Doesn't go that direction and it doesn't turn back and lash out. Love is not poked and reacts. It has no reaction. It's not eagerly angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. This is my favorite one. So there's this story in Genesis where Abraham, he's in his 70s, he's got no children. His wife is barren. God comes to him one day, he's in his tent. God says, go out of the tent. Abraham steps out of the tent. God says, look up. Now there's no light pollution at this time. God says, you see the stars, right? He can see millions of stars. God says to Abraham, who has no children and is past childbearing age, 70 year olds don't have babies in their world any more than they do in our world. And God says to him, you will have more descendants than there are stars in that sky that you can count. And the Bible says Abraham believed him. Even though it's ridiculous. Abraham believed him. And then it says, God counted Abraham's belief as righteousness. This is the central argument in the book of Romans, that God has always saved people by faith. God has always taken that we believe something And he takes it out of the belief category and he drops it into the righteousness category. That God acts as if, because I believe him, I did it right. I didn't do it right. I don't do it right. Do not be fooled by the nice clothes and the pastoral appearance. I do not do it right. But God counts my belief. He pulls it up out of the belief category and he drops it down. In the righteousness category. Because I believed, God acts as if I lived correctly. And Paul here uses that exact same word. He said, love never picks something up that happened and drops it into the wrong category. They wronged me because that's what we do all the time. Someone hurts us and we pick it up out of the I've been hurt, which is the truth, And we drop it into the they harmed me. They wronged me. Someone says something to us. They ask us a question. And we pick it up out of the they asked me a question category. And we drop it into the wrong category. They wronged me. They harmed me. Paul says love never does that. God takes our belief. We don't do anything we just agree that it's true. God takes that and pretends as if we had done everything right. He, he counts it as righteousness. And then he says to us, so you then don't put anything in the wrong category. Just leave it empty. Did, did they hurt you? Yes. Then you were hurt. Then you're hurt. That's, a, that's true. Did they ask you this question? Yes. Yes. Love leaves things at that. Can you imagine if we lived like that? If we never assumed the worst about each other? If anytime somebody said something to us that made us cringe, made us bristle, we didn't think to ourselves, oh, they did that on purpose. They they did that to harm me. If we just let it sit there, we never counted it as wrong because God has counted what we believe as if we had actually done it now I'm preaching to me on this one so wow if only I lived that way love never counts things as wrong love does not delight in evil but it rejoices with the truth again how often does that happen that something good happens to something bad happens to someone else, and secretly we're happy because we want something bad to happen to them. Paul says, no, love never does that. Love rejoices with people. When when things happen to people, then love rejoices with them in that. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. That's what the scriptures call us to as Christians. Because that's how God treats us. God pretends like we've never done anything wrong. He he doesn't see it. He doesn't act on it. He lives in denial. It never happened as far as he's concerned. If you went to God and said, hey, you know, do you remember when I did this bad thing? God's answer is gonna be no. Never happened as far as he's concerned. Jesus, Jesus did that thing. And Jesus was punished for it. All these things that Paul says, this is how we are to care for one another. Before he ever gets into spiritual gifts, before he ever starts talking about these powerful, supernatural giftings that God gives to tongues and prophecy and miracles and all these things, before he ever talks about that stuff, this is how you treat each other. Before I ever teach my children how to drift, I teach them first. Don't ever do this. This, the point of this is not to be able to go and do donuts somewhere. The point of this is to be a safe driver before Paul ever is gonna talk about the, 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 the nitty gritty, the nuts and bolts of spiritual gifts in the church. This is how you live, he says. And this is how we live. And I'm willing to bet that one of those we talked about, you know you're not doing it. Like I, I, I told you which one it was for me. That struck me. Something struck you. I'm pretty well willing to guarantee that. We are all human, we are all fallen. Um, There's something in that list that you know you are not doing somewhere. So I'm gonna pray for us. I'm gonna ask the Lord to speak to us. See if the Holy Spirit says anything. Maybe he already has, right? Maybe he's already uh, poked, prodded, nudged, however it is that he gets through to you. Maybe he's already done that and you know what you need to do. I'm gonna pray for us. If something comes to mind, if you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I was rejoicing in evil, wasn't I? I was really glad that that happened to this person. Then repent. Say to God, you don't want me to act like that, and I don't want to act like that. So help me, because there is no way you are going to do these things on your own. Oh, my gosh. I, I like, at one point, I had to stop working on this passage, because it's like, this is impossible. Nobody can do these things. No, nobody can. Only Jesus. Jesus is the only person who ever did this. But remember, if you are a Christian, Jesus has traded places with you. He got your condemnation. He got your sin. And you got his commendation. You got all the good things he ever did. The only person who can possibly do this is Jesus. So ask him to do it through you. Because he seems to want to. Let's pray. Lord, I... Amen, what else are we gonna say about this? Yes, this is what you call us to. Paul takes agape, yeah, which is just not a great word in his world. um, And wow, does he run with it. This is what it means. This is how we treat others because of how you have treated us. And I confess, Lord, I do not do all these things. I am not all the things that it says love is. And I am some of the things it says love is not. And I bet that's true for my brothers and sisters as well. Jesus, forgive us where we have transgressed your law. Forgive us where we have not loved. We know what it says. We can read. And we know there are places we have not treated people this way. We have not loved them like this. Jesus, forgive us and make it true in us. By your spirit living inside us, work through us so that we do these things we are these people because you were this person. You did all of this. Now you have traded places with us, Jesus, by the the power of your spirit within us. Change us, be at work in us, remind us, make us like you. We cannot do that on our own, Lord. I could try forever. I would never achieve this. But you could do it. The power of your spirit in us, you can do this in us. And so Jesus, we pray these things in your name because we pray everything in your name because we can't do this without you. So in the name of Jesus, our Lord, we pray. Amen.